This is the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach of TopFunky.com. Today I'm interviewing Sean Chittenden, who did the redesign for the Penny Arcade website in Rails. A little personal plug, recently wanted to try out some of the new features in Edge versions of Rails and the new Markaby plugins that Wild Lucky Stiff had come up with, so I threw together rubyonrailsworkshops.com. You can go there, you can find out about all kinds of opportunities for you to learn Rails, whether it's a pragmatic studio with Dave Thomas, or a conference, or all kinds of things. Also, I want to hear from you if you're teaching any kinds of Rails workshop anywhere around the world. Let me know. love to put it out there, help you get a little publicity, and help you find people to attend and workshops that you can go to to learn Rails. We've got stuff all over the world, Austria, Switzerland, might be adding some in Spain, uh, hopefully maybe even some in Australia, of course a bunch in the United States, England, other places. So rubyonrailsworkshops.com. I'm convinced that Sean Chittenden is a pseudonym for 10 men who are contributors to Ruby, Postgres, Memcache, Apache, FreeBSD, THTTPD, Mozilla, KDE, and a few other projects. But people I trust have actually met Sean and confirmed that he's really only one person. Recently, he was involved in the relaunch of the new Penny Arcade site. If you're one of the three remaining people who do not read the Penny Arcade comic, you can find it at penny-arcade.com. Sean's company is Gig Avenue, an end-to-end infrastructure solutions provider, hardware reseller, and co-location partner, located at gigavenue.com. You can email Sean at sean at gigavenue.com. So welcome. Hello. I have to correct you, though. I'm not a committer to all those projects, though I have submitted patches or have uh, tinkered heavily with them. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Penny Arcade has a huge fan base, uh, but when they announced the new site, they seemed almost indifferent. They said Rails either is either some kind of cutting-edge programming language or a way to liquefy a man's brain inside his skull. So what role did you playing that, and why did you choose Rails? We picked up Penny Arcade as a customer, and their initial code was written in PHP and MySQL, and it was horribly unstable under load. Uh, MySQL would have problems, uh, PHP. The, every single page hit was being logged to a database. Uh, P- MySQL does not handle that kind of a workload particularly well. It was two inserts and three updates. Uh, for every page hit, and that led to a, a, just a tremendous amount of instability. And then with PHP, we had a large code base uh, that had grown very organically, coming from PHP 3 all the way up to PHP 4, and it was an extraordinarily unmanageable site from, from a new features perspective. So when it came time to doing the redesign, the uh, Folks over at Penny Arcane had decided that, that the, the look and feel of the site needed uh, a touch-up and had provided us with, with new templates. And when it came time to, to making decisions, we weren't interested in, in 
dealing with database corruption. And since that had been one of the biggest support problems for Penny Arcade, we went with a, a different database, fine, Postgres. Then it came time to trying to figure out how we were going to get all of their content management, all of their uh, the feature requests they were looking for both now and in the future, and how we were going to integrate them and incorporate them so, such that we were able to meet their, uh, their business objectives. And any web language would have worked. But being able to do it in an elegant way, in a way that, that we were able to deliver the product in so that it met their needs, we ended up settling on Rails because there wasn't any really good framework that the in-house staff was familiar enough with to um, as alternatives. I mean, you could go down a Java path, you could go down to a Python path, but, but Rails really kind of fit the bucket, and it was a very nice fit. That makes sense. That, you know, it seems that the site doesn't flex a lot of different things that Rails is strong for, you know, Ajax or JavaScript or other things like that. It's just very straightforward, which is what most people are looking to get from it. Did you have to make it backwards compatible with the old databases, old URLs, that kind of thing? Or did you say, hey, we're just starting from scratch here? Uh, we covered about 90% of the, uh, more than 90% of, the, of uh, the old site and were able to, to massage it into the new site. And there was a significant amount of time actually it was spent in terms of, of making the new site backwards compatible with the old site just because there are a large number of stale clients or RSS newsreaders or people that, that just leech and suck content off of Penny Arcade and we're referencing old URLs. So that was one thing. But in terms of the glitz and, and the other features that, that uh, Rails provides, we really tried to avoid them for this initial launch um, just because the, the emphasis of Penny Arcade is not about the web technology. It is definitely centered around the comic and the editorials provided by the, uh, the, the staff there. But uh, at the same time, stay tuned. Most of the glitz is, is done behind the scenes for, for the, uh, the folks at Penny Arcade just because they're the ones who need it, not necessarily the uh, surfers, but again, stay tuned. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a party for a major Rails-based website here in Seattle, and I was talking to their sysadmin for, for the databases, and he was expressed a lot of concern that Postgres wasn't able to scale for a big site, but obviously... You're doing it, and you even uh, in the past said 10 times out of 10, Postgres will eat my SQL for lunch twice on Sunday. So what kind of things did you have to do, special things to make Postgres work a lot better? Did you use things built into Rails like page caching, or, or how did you handle that? Postgres forces a database administrator to be a database administrator. Uh, MySQL is, is largely a black box solution plus or minus, I know I'm going to catch a lot of flack for saying that, but it, it's, you drop it off, it works by and large, you perform some basic tuning and fiddling, and you're more or less done, and the database will, will tick, providing it doesn't run into some kind of problem. With Postgres, it, it's more of a, a, a what, it's more of, a, of what you'd expect in terms of a relational database, and in doing so, because it forces you to think about your data and actually go through some kind of a data architecting phase, if you think about your data and you figure out what your application's access patterns are, you can get Postgres to scale much higher than, than potentially you can with MySQL, not necessarily on the selects per second or not necessarily on some of the, the raw performance. 
but you can figure out how to get your data to scale, both in terms of, of functionality, both are in terms of performance. There are ways of, of integrating Postgres that you really can't in MySQL or maybe haven't been able to until MySQL 5, and that's uncertain to me at this point in time as to, to what kind of hooks are provided in, into MySQL. And a lot of the ways that I'm talking about in terms of extending Postgres require some developer knowledge, um, making use of triggers and functions, and a lot of that kind of stuff really hasn't been present in MySQL to date, and that's the biggest, biggest single performance thing that, that Postgres has and really isn't used by most database administrators. So you really have to know it, but once you do, you can do pretty powerful things with it. It's a Swiss army knife and then some. There's, there's very few things that you can accomplish with Postgres. There's actually a lot of interesting development being done uh, based around Postgres, either the uh, the folks over at Greenplum um, or Enterprise DB, they're doing some, some very interesting work in terms of commercial versions of Postgres that are actually uh, significantly faster and more scalable than the the open source version of Postgres. So there's also some, some interesting work in, in the commercial space regarding uh, Postgres that, that also is provides for some interesting uh, scalability. And there are a lot of tools on it for Oracle, for migrating from Oracle, right? Don't they have some of the same stored procedure functions or things like that? It's very similar. Both Oracle and Postgres have a PL language that, that lets you do server-side scripting of triggers and whatnot. So yes, there is um, a significant amount of, of migration there. Now that Postgres has a Windows port, there's, there's, there's less of a need to buy a copy of, of Oracle for some of the lower-end SME uh, business applications. You can get away with running that on Postgres, and, and the price tag is just right. Well, you mentioned that the the previous site in PHP used a lot of selects and updates, even just for every single hit. But with Rails, it's really easy to end up with 30 database hits without even knowing it because it's all automatically generated, and, and that can be quite a strain on the database. Did you have to go through and do anything to really optimize the queries being done, or was it more the overall design of the site that helped to make that less of a stress on the database? Overall design of the site. Uh, I've got a background in, in, in counter technology, and that's uh, similar to, like I guess, uh, Hitbox would be the, probably the, the best-known technology like that, or Google Analytics, actually, at this point. When you've got something similar to that, you know that the first, that when you record a, a page hit or anything like that, you can't be going to the database for every page request. So if you think about the way that your data it flows, with the, the new Penny Arcade site, we don't touch the database if we can avoid it. Instead for, I mean, if you, if you think about it, it's comic. So once every, once every you know, uh, you know, blue moon, uh, you know, every couple of hours, there's potentially some kind of a, a content change. In the meantime, you've had millions and millions of page requests, and that data is only read-only to most of the users. So how do you accomplish that, and how do you change the access patterns, or how do you pr provide that data to the, to the Rails process or the Ruby process, knowing that you know, it's, it's not going to change very often? The same is true for up page updates, where if you're trying to record statistical information you don't necessarily need to go in and insert that into a table all the time or an update or whatever. Instead, there are other ways of, of, of caching that data and processing it at a later date more efficiently. That brings up a good point. Even just today, Robot Coop released some open source libraries for using Memcached with Rails, and I saw on your site you've done some other things with Memcached. What 
do you think that's a good system as part of this whole deal? And and would you use the stock memcache gem that's available for Ruby, or did you do something more custom? Memcache is a very interesting system. I I'm a big fan of it and proponent of it. The problem that a lot of people run into is they don't understand the limitations of memcache and memcache is very good at doing exactly what it was intended for it's it can be abused and at which point you will oftentimes run into bugs because it, the understanding of the feature set that memcache provides you is potentially different than what you had expected but if you stay within the guidelines of you know what is that of memcache's initial purposes it's phenomenal utility that said I used the uh, Memcache API, the C and Ruby API that I've written for Penny Arcade. I didn't end up using the Rails gem. I need to at some point go and investigate that, actually, to be honest. So do you think in, I mean, I'm sure it depends on the application, but for a Rails application, would would Memcache be good for database tables that are often hit or rendered pages that you can just dish out immediately or or would it... What was would be a good application of memcached for a Rails app? Uh, I'll say blogs. And there, I'll use that just because it's really kind of a popular topic right now, and it provides a, a very nice use case. That being you've got an author who, once every uh, you know periodic uh, interval, will go and post a new entry and make that available to their site. The That entry then will be potentially read by, you know, N number of people over between updates. So you've got a, a very small read percentage, or percentage of requests are going to be very small write, and then a huge number of read requests. The upshot of that being is, is it plays very well into memcache in that you can cache all of the contents of that front page of a blog, which is where you're going to receive most of your traffic, and you can expire that content once every, let's say, minute or 10 minutes. And when that, that data expires, fine. Now you've, you've mitigated the load on your database such that once every 10 minutes you're going to the database as opposed to once every request. Memcache makes very efficient use of system calls, so it can handle that load much easily, more easily than uh, a database can. Wow, okay, that makes sense. So you're a contributor to the Apache project. Recently, a lot of Rails developers have become disillusioned with Apache, and especially the way it handles fast CGI and unshared hosts or even dedicated hosts and and people are moving to light http for some things do you think that's misdirected can apache be used well for rails applications do you think they're going to improve the different things that are missing in the fast cgi reliability and implementation what are your thoughts on that Uh, light's an interesting one in that it's it's single process single threaded and because it spends most of its time in user space handling requests and the operating system is not spending a lot of time context switching, it's very, very efficient at large sites or highly scalable sites with a large number of connections. That's actually how Memcache is written as well. Because of that, it, it can handle you know, huge numbers of tra- a huge amount of traffic. It also, in, in terms of doing dynamic processes, then it's got, it uses the fast CGI, which seems to be scaling pretty well. And yeah, the Apache project, uh, the Apache's web server, it's a phenomenally configurable web server. Uh, I, yeah, I've done some work with Mod Ruby. I've done a lot of, of uh, performance work for static files and actually Mod Proxy. It's, it's a particularly efficient or, or used to be. 
Um, it's not that it's not still, but it, it has problems scaling to, to huge number of connections, and that's why Apache 2 was written. The problem being is if you think about a web request, there's, there's really two phases of that web request. The first one is, is the connection handling, which is typically was done in Apache 1, one process, one connection. In Apache 2, that's potentially different. You've got the ability to do connection pooling. Now, for a long time, however, there have been alternatives to, to that, the Apache approach, which the Apache 2 has a nice set of hybrids there, but it was most web servers or most high-performance web servers before Apache 2 were all single-process, single-threaded. So you had a single process with a huge pool of connections uh, that was handling using KQ or ePoll or Select. Those kind of single-process, single-threaded web servers, you had to have a way of handling dynamic request to find fast CGI. Apache really isn't suited to the fast CGI market, or for a long time it didn't have an emphasis on that just because it had the single process, uh, single connection kind of a mindset. And so for every request, you just have a single backend that was dynamically handling your request and you're off to the races. The reason that's important is if you have a single process that's doing all of your dynamic requests and doing your connection handling while you're potentially waiting on a database or your connection, none of your connections would be um, being served and they'd be starved of content. So Apache, like I said, just hasn't had an emphasis on fast CGI because of its, its you know, single process, single connection kind of a model. With Lite or some of the other higher performance web service, fast CGI was an absolute must. Apache, I'm not sure, is... They, I know in the 2.2 series that they're, they're starting to go down the fast CGI road and emphasizing that. In terms of a, a long-term fit between fast CGI and Apache, I'm not necessarily convinced that there's going to be something there. In the light crowd, there definitely is a... That's the primary use of light is actually probably for fast CGI, either for PHP or for Rails. So I'm personally going down the, the light path or the, the, the fast CGI path. It just seems to scale better, and, and it reduces the code complexity on the web server. Apache 2 is a very sophisticated piece of, of uh, code, but also a bit more bug-prone and uh, or was for a long time. It took a, much, a really long time for Apache 2 to grow out of Apache 1. So... So you said that Lighty also uses the single process type of model. Are they using kind of an older style, but it's just customized for the purpose of fast CGI, or are there other things in there that help it perform a lot better? The biggest advantage that Light has, or Lighty has at the moment is that it makes use of, of the various system calls of an operating system that allow it to handle a large number of file descriptors. Lighty isn't unique in this. THTTPD was very good at this, but they actually didn't have fast CGI support or didn't for a long time. I don't think it does at this point. Uh, and that's the reason that I actually moved from, from uh, me personally from Lighty, or from THTTPD to Lighty. Because Lighty uses KQ uh, specifically, it can handle just an, an exorbitantly, uh, disgustingly huge number of, of file descriptors or connections, whereas, for instance, Apache couldn't keep up with that. Uh, in, in example, I think the largest or the most that I've ever pushed Lighty to at this point is about 50,000 connections uh, through a single process. And Apache, you know, it'll probably top out, if you've aggressively tuned it, maybe to a 1,000 or a couple thousand. More conservatively or more normal, you're only going to get probably, you know, 500 or so. Wow, that's fascinating. And as a developer, it's nice to be able to just fire up and use Lighty and use fast CGI even while you're developing. Well, you have uh, made several comments on your website about open source licenses 
You recently said the GPL poses a greater risk to the health of innovation than Microsoft. Tell us a little bit more about this. Why do you think the BSD license protects and supports innovation so much more? And does the MIT license also support it? I believe that's what Rails is licensed under. Basically, it comes down to economics. It, it, it's really ends up boiling back down to economics. I and mean, from software perspective, you typically, you know, it's, it's philosophy or it's a form of evangelism that you, you, you fall into. But really, ultimately, at the end of the day, it falls back to economics. The GPL force enforces a 1x, multi, 1x multiple or, or 1x business model in that all of your revenue is potentially tied to a person because the GPL really is centered around the support model where, fine, I will, I will write code that nobody else can ship or there's, there's no value for them shipping a CD with that, which means that you can use my business or, or use my business services and, you're gonna, and the way that you're going to do that is you're going to pay for support. Um, that means that I as a consultant or you know, my team of consultants, we're going to, you know, our business growth is limited to our ability to go and service customers, which means we're stuck with a 1x multiple. The BSD or MIT license, on the other hand, allows for you know, businesses with a 10x or 20x multiple or even higher than that. Um, the reason being is, is those licenses allow you to ship commercial products. Some examples of companies that use FreeBSD would be like OnStore or Netscaler, um, simply because of, of the BSD license that's in place there. Um, there. There's plenty of examples of, of these kind of businesses that are huge corporations at this point, and the way they're able to get bootstrapped, and even Microsoft at some point used the, uh, the BSD TCP stack. Um, they were able to leverage existing work, incorporate it into a product, and ship a gajillion CDs or a gajillion boxes and because of that kind of support model, their business grew. When their business grew, they were able to hire more engineers or, or pay their engineers more. And as a result of that, the, the quality of code that falls out of that, potentially falls out of that, is much, much higher than, than uh, that of the GPL, simply because the caliber of, of talent you'll be able to attract from a 10x business model or 20x business model is going to very likely be higher than that of a 1x business model with a background as a hardware VAR or in, it, in selling boxes, I, I see this. Now, the, the risk from the BSD or MIT licenses, you aren't necessarily guaranteed that those changes are going to go back into the open source community. And you just kind of have to live with that. There's actually another business model that's, that's supported by the GPL and uh, GPL V2 is uh, the ASP type model. It, one of the things that's actually interesting is, is Google is Basically, as the world's largest ASP ever, they've largely trumped a lot of the restrictions of the GPL, and, and it doesn't matter what the, the open source license of the software that they want to use is, really, because with their ASP model, um, and given that they're just you know, a ubiquitous service provider, they are able to largely get around the restrictions of the GPL. Another example is, is MySQLAB, uh, as, in terms of business model in that they have shifted their libraries in order to access their database under the GPL, which forces companies that wish to use MySQL's database to purchase a commercial version, which is kind of a bastardization of, of the GPL and, and not a, uh, a business model that the, um, was in mind when the GPL was first written. But nonetheless, business evolves, and, and there we are. A couple of weeks ago, Avi Bryant was mentioning that and said that a lot of the 
per, uh, the cause of the recent interest in a lot more web frameworks, at least like Rails, is that companies realize that they can have a lot better benefit from their software if it's open source then there's going to be a huge community or the possibility of a huge community around it contributing back benefiting it but that makes sense i mean it seems that if they know that their investments don't automatically have to go back to the community then there's more of a financial motivation which of course quite a big motivation for most businesses well here's the biggest the single biggest reason for why companies actually should go and release code back into the open source community. I said it's a risk to go and, and release code under the MIT license in that you know, you have no guarantees that you're going to potentially be able to use that. The flip side of things are, if you are a business and you write a piece of code, you have no guarantees that in the future you are going to have an engineer to support that. How are you going to support code that your business is potentially depending on? you continue to pay the engineer, or you potentially release it in the open source community, let somebody else, another business that is able to find use for it, find a bug, submit it back, and now you've got a community that, that's, that's based on this. And this is how, for instance, the FreeBSD community really thrives, or the Postgres community thrives. Businesses have a feature. They, don't necessarily, they, they, they add it, they test it, they use it, their business depends on it. They don't necessarily want to support it long-term, so they kick it off into the open source community and let other engineers that contribute in this kind of shared space uh, maintain the feature and push it forward into future releases. That way the, the originating company doesn't have to. So in a sense, it's maybe a tiny bit of insecurity for developers because they've become less crucial since there are so many uh, other people out there to support it. And yet at the same time, it seems like it's a benefit for developers as well because they can show their skills and they can contribute onto a real project. I would put the the insecurity concerns of developers kind of by the wayside, though, just because there, there's also another component of, of business, which is the promotion of products. And, and one of the easy ways to go and promote a product is to distribute it and without having to pay for an advertising agency, potentially. So open source also provides for an interesting avenue in that regard because the engineers will oftentimes internally champion the... Um, you know, a utility of something or the functionality of something. And once its, it's functional use is proven, then there really isn't uh, a need for some kind of a marketing budget in order to, to get buy-off at a later date by managers. If it works, it works, right? Okay. And the same developers who are promoting it have a audience that really cares about that. You know, a lot of the people I talk to on IRC or my blog or whatever, are other developers. So if I'm popularizing, you know, advertising some kind of technology, it's going right to those kind of people who really would be interested in using it. You're, you're speaking to the end market. That's, that's right. By being a participant in the open source community, it's assumed that you have a certain degree of technical uh, savviness. And in, so when, when you go and make a discussion or, or uh, some kind of an argument supporting a particular technology or product, you're done. The, the, the other person on the other end, the receiving end, in theory, understands that argument and is able to champion internally or is able to accept that argument or potentially refute it. And, you know, you, you've at least got a common dialogue or common language for, for interacting. Well, that's fascinating. I've never thought about it in that way before, but it makes a lot of sense. Well, thanks a lot for taking time and expressing and sharing a lot of your insights today. 
Uh, yeah, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun actually answering these questions. Some of this stuff I have I don't have to, the opportunity to to talk about very often outside of potential user group meetings here in the Bay. So, yeah, it, it's it's been a lot of fun. This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'd like to thank Samson Audio for donating microphones and recording equipment. Thomas Fuchs for designing the logo you see on our website. Nick Dynas of nsputnik.com for audio editing and post-production. Intro music by Cake. Closing music by Why the Lucky Stiff and His Thirsty Cups. <laughs> <laughs>